The Layered Butter Podcast acknowledges the Mississaugas of the credit of the First Nation of the Anishinaabe people on the traditional territory that we are recording on. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Layered Butter, the podcast. I'm Rodrigo Cockting. I am Jordan Sloggett. And I'm Rafael Cordero. And we have another great episode for you today. Very controversial, very controversial episode dealing with uh, people that are controversial and how we deal with their bodies of work. That's an exciting conversation that we're going to have later with two absolutely amazing guests. But uh, first, you're going to have us chatting about the pre-show. Before we do get to that, though, just a quick reminder uh, in our housekeeping section that our Studio Ghibli issue, in case you have not been following us on Instagram, has been announced that we are finally going to print. So if you are interested in purchasing one of these issues and having the low, low price that it has right now before it goes up, uh, you need to put in your orders before June 15th. After that, the the book will go up by $5. Every print is going to come with like a little mini poster, uh, an amazing piece of artwork of Spirit Away. You can go check that out on our social media page and get I'm fully convinced that this is a book that you need to have on your shelf. Um, yeah. Other than that, just a reminder that if you are on Patreon or you want to support us on Patreon, every month we're sending out a, a little mini trading card for all our backers at any tier, at any level of support. So you can go in even at the lowest one if you want, or you can do more if you think that the work that we're, we're putting in is valuable. Um, feel free to support us. So just a quick reminder on that. Um, I don't is, have. Is there else. any like location limit on that support? Like, if someone on the other side of the globe supports us for fifty cents a month, well, the lowest tier is uh, three dollars. So right. you okay. have to put in at least three dollars. But if you are on the other side of the world, which would be I don't know Russia, whatever mm. whatever the, the other what? side of the world is, uh, we would still send it to you. Yeah, like uh, you know we have supporters in, in Japan and we send it to them every hey. month. I think it kind of balances out with like we have a lot of Canadian supporters and that doesn't come out to as much, and so then right. It pays off for the other one. I guess the shipping on this card is probably also not yeah, super not. substantial because it is a card and not. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just something that we really wanted to do because there have been a lot of people that have been supporting us from day one. And, you know, like this, uh, the publishing of this book is, is tricky and that we put out the digital version first and then people yeah. put in pre-orders. And until we're able to go to print, we can't go to print because, again, we're like a relatively small company. And so that's been that's been um, there's been people that have been, have been backing us on Patreon since day one. And so we wanted to make sure that we gave them something. So every month we started doing this. Um, if it goes well, we're going to continue doing it. So, yes. Yeah, so stay tuned. Cool. Uh, time for the pre-show. Time for the pre-show, um, Raf and Jordan. So story number one on the docket, we have Mr. Ryan Johnson of Knives Out and uh, The Last Jedi fame, who after his movie was given a trilogy of films allegedly, and then that was uh, supposed to be canceled. And the latest news is I think Kathleen Kennedy has said that it's been delayed because he's been unbelievably unbelievably busy with Knives Out. The sequel is coming out on Netflix at some point this year, I think. And so, I don't know, I guess maybe my first question off the top is, like, how did you guys feel about his previous attempt at a Star Wars movie? 
Um, Raph, I know you're you're fairly distant from the Star Wars world, but I'm guessing that you saw these new ones or no? Oh, yeah, did I watch it with you, buddy? No, I don't know. I, th- anyway, I think once I saw long. Palpatine like oh, have, bucking on a crane, it's just like <laughs> everything else was deleted you know from what? my mind. Like I'm he, in a black movie. I enjoyed the Last Jedi. I thought it was um, fun, and I thought it was unique. Um, I again, I don't really have major thoughts on the Star Wars franchise. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think was it last episode that I broke the news <laughs> during the podcast? I was like, oh my god, right, John had a trilogy it was yeah. like it reminded me of um david benioff and tb weiss vice mm-hmm. whatever um they also had a trilogy in mind and then theirs yeah. got shafted for obvious reasons but um i i didn't even realize they had this going on i don't know i feel like i feel like this story or this a universe of Star Wars has to cut, like, let's let's step away from it for a bit. I mean, there's too much going on. Uh, Boba Fett, who had only six minutes of screen time, became one of the most popular characters, and now they have an own TV show about this guy too, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I just feel like let's let's step away. But I, I'm cool with Ryan Johnson. I'm cool with him getting a trilogy, Matt Reeves style. Let's see. Interesting. What about you, Jordan? How do you where do you land on on Ryan Johnson Star Wars work? Future uh, work. I love The Last Jedi. I think it's the best thing that came out of this new trilogy, aside from, I don't know, uh, Kylo, like generally Kylo Ren and Daisy, <laughs> Kylo Ren and Daisy Ridley. Uh, <laughs> I'll like briefly interrupt you just to confirm that you have the correct take on that. No, please continue. Uh, that I have the correct take on this? No, you As have in, the it, correct take. He it is the best one. You. It is the best one. Oh, yeah. The three. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's it's, you know, the force, it's kind of like the original trilogy in that like, they do mirror them in in interesting ways. Um, the first one is like fuzzy, heartwarming, not challenging, and like mm-hmm. at the end, not super deep. The the second one, the Empire Strikes Back, is the most complex one, probably the most controversial one. And then the third one tries to throw a whole bunch of stuff at the screen, and it's eh. I, I'd say uh, I like uh, Return of the stick. Jedi. <laughs> Well, I'd say more sticks with Return of the Jedi than sticks with, um, I can't even remember the name of it. The Last, Last Skywalker. No. Last Skywalker. The Rise of the Skywalker. Rise, Rise of, of the Skywalker. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to see Ryan Johnson do more. Uh, but I kind of just agree with Raph that, like, Disney successfully killed the spirit the of Star Wars yeah, the with, like, That's cool. just grinding it into the ground with what a decade are, of. What yeah. are we basing that on? Uh, we're basing it on the fact that they went forward with too many movies and series. And, I'm just, yeah. Like, no, but I, solo I'm saying, like, how and, are we defining that they kill that? As in, like, I feel like everything they've released has been successful. No? I'm not interested. Yeah, I'm sorry. When I say kill, I mean, like, the spirit of it in my in my heart. Not, right, okay, like, financial cool. success or anything like that. Mm-hmm. The series is still successful. I think even the last one probably did really yeah. well, just not quite as well as they had hoped. Um, and I, I like the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian was cool. Uh, yeah. I haven't really watched Boba Fett. I might check it out, but I feel like it has demoted Star Wars from the magic of Star Wars right. to like yes, the mundanity of Star Trek, where you're like, some of it's good, There's some of it's bad, much. whatever. There's a lot of mm-hmm. it. Interesting. Well, you know, we're, we're, wherever your opinions lie, I think there's a little bit there for everyone uh, of what we said. Um, number story number two, Mr. Tom Cruise, who is somebody I wish I could speak less about, oh. uh, said that he wouldn't allow Top Gun Maverick to debut on streaming. And my first question about this story is, was that a possibility? Well, Paramount, right? Paramount has Paramount Plus now. So I'm mm-hmm. assuming but, like, they were, could... were they, do they have a plan right now where they're putting their movies out on streaming? Uh, I don't know. And I don't 
think so, but um, I wouldn't su- be surprised if they uh, came out with something like that. I think it's huh. also because Tom Cruise has been attached to Paramount for years, right? Right. So he has such a strong pull with that studio that he's like, yeah, no, this is not going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So he'll have I, that. I can't, it must have been in the talks at some point, especially when they were. And then he came in there and he said, no. Yeah. Wasn't this movie supposed to come out in 2020? Like, it's been a huge delay, right? So at some point throughout the pandemic, I'm sure there were some executives who said, like, can we premiere Paramount Plus with the new Top Gun movie? Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised. I find that hard to believe only because their attachment to audience is so low that they would make no money compared to pushing it out. Like, it's different for Netflix or for HBO that have, like, big subscriber bases. Uh, Paramount Plus is relatively new. I don't know. I mean, Yellowstone, maybe. buddy. They got Yellowstone. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the one that's like making all the people go crazy, Yellowstone. I feel like six people talk about that show oh. at, on any given week. Listen, but, Yellowstone is the highest viewed uh, cable drama on TV right now. 14 just, million. Come on. My sense is um, that there's a lot of virtue signaling and this kind of talk about like theaters versus streaming. Like, you know, it's like Steven Spielberg is often out here saying, like, my movies will never be a go to streaming first, blah, blah, blah. It's like, OK, was that a question? Like, you're, oh, my you, God. You know what I mean? Like, it's like it's like me saying, you know what? Like, my movies are never going to be released in Canada. Like, yeah, like I'm not putting out any movies in Canada anyway. Like, it's 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 kind of like a fake headline almost. Mm-hmm. I don't think Tom Cruise's movies are really something that like Paramount Plus is like trying to put into streaming first. Even Netflix is now going backwards and trying to put movies into theaters first. So I don't think that, like, I, I think the pandemic was like a very specific response. And um, HBO and Warner's ended up having like this deal that was relevant to that year, but they haven't carried it forward. Like, there doesn't seem to be any, any indication that streamers see a benefit to putting their movies that are going to be in theaters first into streamer. Like, it, it, even Netflix is. Um, like making their window bigger between the time that movies go into theaters and then go to streaming services. Anyways, I just think I just think that Tom Cruise is like talking out Listen, of both sides of his in, mouth. In that here. same article, um, I think he was saying he's like, "Yeah, man, you know, I go to the cinema like a regular person." I think also he wants to cherish that cinematic experience i mean this man did not learn how to jump off you know whatever he's jumping off fly a fighter jet uh just for you to watch it on your iphone (laughs) you know what i mean he wants you to experience what he experienced i mean this man is is gonna you know he's gonna do this until he's 100 years old or he dies doing something so he wants to preserve that experience and i'm all for it this should never I mean, no Tom Cruise film should debut on streaming. Like, what the fuck is that? But anyway. But is there an indication that any Tom Cruise is going not to? this. I'm, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> what if, oh, you know, down the road, some exec is going to be like, let's release this and we have no choice, right? It's like, well, I think there was a but couple what of films. there's a more immersive experience at home than in the theater? What's so your immersive your... experience at home? What? I don't, we don't have that technology now. Like right now I'm not saying, but like in the future, if it's more immersive in a, in at home in like some type of VR than in the theater, you still think that it should be released in the theater? Yes. Because some people can't have that immersive experience at home because what if they don't have that technology? What if you don't have a theater? What do you mean? What if you don't have a theater? I mean, do you think every place in the world has theaters? No, but I mean, you could find your way there. (laughs) No, I grew up in this town that has no theater. Listen, I disagree with you. I'm just saying, Jordan, you're, you're, help me out. Don't you know the theater, the town you grew up did have a theater? What do you mean? 
like I, my grandfather had a theater, but it wasn't a Hollywood theater. It was like <laughs> rent, like contraband movies that they played like in the morning, like martial arts. And then at night, like Bollywood films, it was like, that was the reality that, that we had. I'm just saying that it's like Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg and everyone, they all have like a specific narrative. And I think it's like the, like the Twitter conversation is to be like, yeah, fuck streamers and so on. But I think they serve different purposes. And again, it's like, I don't think there was ever a risk that Mission Impossible or Top Gun were going to come out on a streamer. Like, I don't think this is a real, like, it was in response to somebody that raised the question, was there ever the thought of, like, going into streaming during COVID? And then he said that, like, that's never going to happen ever and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's like, okay, but was that ever, like, a risk of happening? And I don't think that's true. Like, I don't think that's the reality. I think it's just him, (laughs) you know, wanting to, to go off. I, I think that's kind of fair, but it is, I mean, there was a time during the first summer of the pandemic that mm-hmm. theaters were not opening or they were, but people weren't going back. And a lot of stuff did come out to streaming that we never would have. Uh, like and Dune, I, I think, is is the big one I, I, that came out that to, to streamers ten, pretty fast. And Tenet, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like a couple of those where just, or maybe Kong versus Godzilla versus Kong. Just, just a couple things that like never ever would have been an option for streaming that got pushed to that. Uh, I think a lot of the Warner releases. Yeah. Um, HBO but got them. Yeah. I will just say that it's like the HBO has a bigger subscriber base that can afford to pay the studio the amount of money that they did. As in, like my my question is more so: Paramount Plus was going to put out like their Paramount movies on the streamer first and lose the money from the studio. It seems unlikely. Like that the the financials of that is really what has me questioning. Well, the interesting uh, kind of dismissing like Cruz's point and to your point, like the PR ness of this um, uh, making a statement like that. Uh, it's a question that, like, for you guys, have you purposefully um, continued to, like, avoid watching stuff at home if you know you can go see in a theater? Has the pandemic changed that calculation in your head of, like, what's worth going to the movie theaters? Or, I mean, I think I my calculation was always different than, like, the average moviegoer's calculation, as in... Even before the pandemic, if you uh, gave me a movie the same day on streamer than on theater, I think for most movies, I probably would have stayed home and watched it in the comfort of my own. I think, um, like, I really, like, what I most enjoy that I can't replicate at home is the sound. Like, I yes. fucking Agreed. love the sound of a movie theater. And so it's like something like Dune, I can't imagine listening to that, like, score or, like, sound effects at home first. Like, I, I'm very happy that I saw that movie in theater first. But for example, if you show me something like, like Space Jam 2 or like Mortal Kombat, like these are oh movies gosh. that I, I never would, like even before the pandemic. You don't spend like, the money to watch it. Never would have seen it in a theater. I would have waited till it went into like a home video format and watched it. Um, the, I guess my big question for me right now is I was thinking like trying to come up with movies. I thought about Nope. And is Nope a movie that if you were given the option to see it same day at home or same day in the theater, what would you do? I think for that one, just because I think like there is a bit to gain from like audience reaction in a horror movie that I mm-hmm. probably would go see it in a movie theater. I felt the same way about comedies. Like, I mean, you guys know I've been watching comedies and there's, there's just it's undeniable that comedies are just funnier when there's more people around you laughing. You know, it's why TV shows have uh, like the baked in like fake audience laughter. It works. But I find those things annoying. I find both audience like live audience and studio audiences and comedies. Like they take me out of the moment because it's like, I think a sense of humor is so individual 
that if somebody laughs at something that you don't find funny, like all of a sudden it's you're, like forcing you're overthinking you to laugh. It. Yeah. yeah. Or vice versa. If you find something funny and nobody else laughs, all of a sudden you're like in your head about like, you know, why didn't they find it funny? Oh, that just makes me feel superior. Like, aha, <laughs> I saw the comedy where you did not, but <laughs> maybe that's just me. The Arrested Development fan vibe. <laughs> um, one last story before we wrap up. Uh, it, we're going to go over to France where the Cannes Film Festival is happening. There's a Japanese filmmaker that is uh, really challenging, I guess, like our our vision of the f- of the future. She's um, she, she made a dystopian movie where... Uh, her name is Saichie Hayakawa, and it's called Plan 75. It's based on a real problem that Japan is currently facing. They're the, the most rapidly aging industrial society in the world, which means it's going to cause a, a big problem as their society continues to age. They're having less children, um, you know, so on, et cetera, et cetera. This movie deals with the concept of people um, signing up for with, with the, the government to receive uh, an amount of money to be euthanized. Um, I think it's somewhat relevant to our Canadian culture, because we have a, a certain amount of assisted dying legislation in place. We're also a rapidly aging population. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you guys feel like these type of controversial movies are um, something that, that you should think twice about? Or or is it just kind of like a cool exploration of sci-fi or real fantasy topic? Listen, the fact that it has to be in a dystopian future... That's the only part I don't really agree with because I feel like this. If this is something as real enough that could be uh, relative today in Japan, it's not a dystopian future anymore. You know, it's it's I, the I mean, present. Like our future has become so dystopian that it's exactly like the, right. The, this is this is our present now. Yeah. So I I feel like I embrace a lot of these controversial storylines or conflicts because it is something that we can see happening or is happening right now that we choose to ignore or don't want to answer. Right, and sometimes these filmmakers and these writers use these films as a way for them to show society or um, their culture, their perspective on, hey, this is what's going to happen. Are we really going to go down this road? Or, hey, this is what's going to happen if we don't go down this road, right? So, I, I mean, I embrace it. I, I think it's very brave for them to do it because there are some cultures and there are some filmmaking uh, or filmmaking studios that would shut them down and be like, we're not writing this or we're not doing this because it shows uh, our culture in a very different light, right? Mm. Uh, especially if they want to submit this into like a film festival, right? So, um, or even the Oscars, right? It paints a very, I don't know, controversial picture of what they want to talk about. But I, I'm cool with it. I, I feel like filmmakers should um, take that next step, right? And it doesn't need to be something like, you know, I keep thinking of David Cronenberg. Just just because Cronenberg's works are controversial because of his body of work. And I feel like a lot of these filmmakers that try to get out there with some kind of story or perspective of, of how they want to shoot their film will inhi- inhibit that style or something like that just to be heard, Right. Mm. Whereas if your story is strong enough, I'm sure it's going to speak for itself. Like you don't have to do body horror or you don't have to, you know, get a really big actor to sell your film right. Your 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 film is going to sell it itself because it's that good. Anyway, I digress. Jordan, what about you? Are you pro killing old people? Oh, yeah. Every day. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I am pro movies being about whatever they want to be about, uh, however controversial it is. And I think movies are a great place to, I don't know, get people's attention, explore things like that. Like, yeah. um, 
I don't know. It's not even a new thing anyway, right? Like I, I'm sure some of us said, did, did both of you learn about uh, a modest proposal, the essay by Jonathan Swift from 1729, that whole concept in English class? I, I remember this. It was basically, it's just, I did my English class consisting of learning verbs and so I think it's a different type. <laughs> yes. Sorry, we've had this discussion before. We're, we, we, a couple uh, for listeners, a couple weeks ago, we were um, in the car on the way to go to see the Northmen, and we were talking about uh, high school English classes. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, we all took like Shakespeare in our English mm-hmm. classes. And you were, Rodrigo was like, uh, nope, we didn't learn Shakespeare in my English. Yeah. And I, I was confused before I remembered that Rodrigo didn't go to. Uh, yep. High school English class in uh, in Canada. I went in Peru, so I was learning about like Garcia Marquez, Vargas Llosa, Isabel Allende, so on. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> um, anyway, a modest proposal. It's a it's a satirical essay, and it's basically written in really fancy. Like, oh, this is like a good idea. And the proposal, the the full line of it is called a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. And the idea was basically just, we should eat children. And it's not a real idea. It was just Jonathan Swift being like, Hey, isn't it barbaric to like propose that we should eat like children? Like, you know, shouldn't we do something like, I mean, it was a whole satirical thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically mocking like the heartless attitudes towards poor people. Uh, and, you know, in the 1700s, you did it through a, an essay, and now you can do it through a movie. So, But I, I do think at the beginning you were saying something about, like, it, it brings it top of mind or whatever. And I do think that's a really good point because this is a real – like, the aging population is uh, a real problem in many places. I, I know Japan is having that issue because people are having less kids. We have – like, in Canada, we have, like, a, a major – sustainability as in like we can't maintain the level of population like we need to bring in more immigrants to be able to pay for like all these services like we need we need to bring in people from other countries and so on and so i think like we don't have this conversation enough like we've had a federal election a year ago i think and we're having a provincial election in a couple of days and there's no conversation about like what type of like health care services need to be provided for the aging pop the, the challenge of having an, a very quickly aging population and so I do think like movies like this at least like start a conversation. You know, obviously you don't have to agree that we should be killing old people. Like I was basically raised by my grandmother, so probably against that idea. But just in general, like I, I think the the challenging uh, thoughts, uh, good ideas come from challenging places. Yeah. There you go. When we come back, we're gonna have a, a another conversation about challenging things. We're gonna talk about like problematic creators with our special guest for this week, the hosts of Which Please, Hannah McGregor and Marcel Cosman. Uh, But before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break. Layered Butter is brought to you by Hola Translation. Hola Translation is a Spanish translation agency that can help you translate anything you need into the world's fourth most spoken language. Whether you're looking for your advertisement to have a bigger impact in the Hispanic community, or you need personal documents translated from Spanish to English, Ola Translation offers quick service at competitive prices. Ola Translation is offering Layered Butter listeners 5% off all their services across the board. Go to olatranslation.org and use the promo code BUTTER, that's B-U-T-T-E-R. Say goodbye to Google Translate and say hola to Ola Translation. All right. So for today's episode, we are joined by our guests, Hannah McGregor and Marcel Cosman. Um, 
Hello. Wait, sorry, did I did I just change it? I said Cosman this time, and it was Cosman. No, it's right? fine. No, no, it's no, Cosman. No, you okay. did it right. You did it right. I'm sorry. You're I shouldn't. Th- have, you're I shouldn't overthinking have it, it now, buddy. We're you're overthinking right. it, but we're going to keep all this in because oh, we good. like to have our listeners see the behind the scenes mm-hmm. of uh, of our. So we're bringing both of you in um, to talk about the idea of uh, engaging with problematic creators and mm-hmm. their their work and that media. Um, but before we kind of delve into that topic, uh, why don't both of you introduce yourselves? Um, uh, Hannah, why don't you introduce yourself to our, our audience? Yeah. Hi, I'm Hannah McGregor. This is my voice. You can hear it now. This is what it sounds like. I might be checking my levels again as I do this. Um, So Marcel and I co-host a podcast called Witch Please, which is about Harry Potter. So we obviously are (laughs) well-versed engaging with the work of deeply problematic creators. Um, And when I'm not making that podcast, I am also an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Um, and then I've also got two cats, and that's important. Always. What are their names, what? Hannah? Al Purdy, who mm-hmm. listeners can see in the background. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> that was like a, that was a, a, an yeah. audio-based joke. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, and then uh, Pancakes. Marcel, did you know Pancakes has a middle name? I did, but I've forgotten what it is. What's her middle Moon name? Mooncakes. That's adorable. <laughs> Yeah. So it's double cakes in the name? Yeah, Pancake Mooncakes McGregor. That's her name. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> Which you probably only use when she's misbehaving or needs Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Marcel, All who right. are you? <clears throat> um, my name is Marcel Cosman. I am uh, also a co-host of Which Please, which I make with Hannah McGregor. That's me. <laughs> That's you. Um, I, this is, so this, this wonderful um, engagement that we're having right now is uh, coming at a, at a wild time in my life. I'm going through an existential crisis because I'm coming off of maternity leave. Um, I've just had a, a second child who I love so much and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life because I'm also, I turned 38 and now I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Oh Does no, I'm a girl. No. Feel so much closer to forty than thirty-seven did. Yeah, it's like, yeah. why are you still renting? <laughs> so yeah, so I'm having a real, I'm having a real crisis. I don't know how to describe myself other than a, other than the co-host of Which Please, which I, which I love to make, and feel really good about. Um, I'm like a reluctant academic who's trying to decide whether or not to 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 be an academic. <laughs> So that's what I do. Yeah. Well, I can't promise that by the end of this conversation, you'll have navigated your existential oh. crisis, but we can do our best to, to help you through it as yeah. as it pertains to the topic, maybe. But <laughs> I'm, I'm open to suggestions, so we'll see where we go. Hey, <laughs> so I had originally reached out because uh, what we wanted to have you both on to talk uh, for Harry Potter episode. That episode mm-hmm. has now came and gone, but uh, it's I, I think it's still the perfect opportunity to um just talk about, uh, obviously, with J.K. Rowling constantly being the news and constantly um, wanting to. Uh, constantly it's not even sucking. putting her foot in her mouth yeah. at this point. It's just because mm. yeah. that yeah. Im- implies that it's a mistake of some sort and it's not. And mm-hmm. she's intends all that she does. And, mm-hmm. uh, and let's say very specifically what she does. She is publicly yeah. mm-hmm. anti-trans. Like, yeah. she is building a public and political persona mm-hmm. around 
advocating against trans rights. Yeah. And you know? it yeah. seems more and more it's throwing very harmful. More and more throwing in with people who are uh, antithetical to I mean other, you know, quote unquote liberal type beliefs that she's previously shared. Um it seems like it does not matter as long as uh, her audience is as long as they're in that anti-trans uh, point of mm-hmm. view, she seems to be happy yeah. to cultivate and, and feed into that, mm-hmm. um, which does put into, I mean, to, to bridge that into the topic, it's hard for fans who grew up of her, the world that she created, uh, even if like the new movies aren't great, even if the cursed child is <laughs> poorly written, even if, the, <laughs> you know, we can have our, our issues with that, but it, it feels mm-hmm. like engaging with it feels icky now. Uh, yeah, I, I'm dealing yeah. with that even with the the new um, oh, what's the new Hogwarts game that's coming out? Uh, yeah, I forget Whatever the name of it, but Hogwarts it, game. It looks like a neat game, and it looks fun, mm-hmm. and it's engaging that part of me that says like, oh, I'd love that idea of like mm-hmm. going to Hogwarts and walking around. But then another part of me is like, this game supports J.K. Rowling. The funds mm-hmm. go to her. She still owns a lot of like all the rights to it and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if she's actively being a, a force for harm in the world, then it's hard to to want to support that um yeah yeah like i i think hannah and i we've we've talked we've talked on the podcast a bunch we've talked in our in production meetings a bunch we've talked talked with like mutual friends a bunch just about how like the queer community broadly speaking just felt such a home in the harry potter series and so of all the betrayals it just feels like it just feels like such a such a confusing and hateful one um and and yeah and so it's it's what to do with the Harry Potter franchise and our love for it is such a such a common millennial and especially a queer millennial problem and it just yeah. and, and uh, now that so many of us are in our um, like 30s and 40s and even late 20s, like people are having kids, people are are wanting to get gifts for the loved ones in their lives who are having kids. And so many of us are like, oh, these books were so special and so important to me and helped me to understand how to like be a good person in the world. But I can't, but I can't see them that way anymore. And yeah. it's, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side, you've got a kind of extreme reaction. I mean, there's a lot of sort of Twitter discourse that says, well, these books were always silly and you were silly for liking them. And if you're surprised or feel betrayed, then shame on you. You should have known because they're bad books. Mm. And that Mm -hmm. figuring out how to navigate in between the like, well, I love this thing and it was really important to me. And so I'm going to pretend that it's neutral for me to continue to engage with it or the flip side, which is like this thing has now been tainted and thus nobody can ever talk about it again. And if you talk about it, you are part of the problem. Like, Mm. you know, we do contemporary discourse about how we engage with culture has a tendency towards those extremes. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's actually a lot of middle ground (laughs) between those things. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm guessing like me, I've read it several times and I haven't really been able to bring myself to sit down and read it again kind of since this thing started many years ago. Um, mm-hmm. 
like movies have been on, I think like that feels a lot more casual than like sitting down and cracking open the books. Have you guys um, done like a, a reread of these books since this this has started? And ha- does it feel the same as as it did before, or is there any part of it that that kind of changes? This is so like we did an original run of our podcast before Rowling had outed herself in all of these mm-hmm. ways, when mm-hmm. we you could still engage with her as like a relatively a good faith actor um, yeah. right towards the end of that original run of the podcast, which was like a read through of the book series right towards the end was when she first released the magic in North America stuff, mm. um, mm-hmm. which people don't remember this as much, but there was a huge protest because she did a ton of like really horrible appropriation of indigenous culture. Of indigenous culture, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people like really tried to like lovingly call her in and she mm-hmm. she was signaling all of the ways in which she was going to continue to to be right. troublesome in the sense that she like refused to engage with any of that, just blocked people on Twitter, just like mm-hmm. absolutely had nothing to do with it. So we were sort of starting to engage with that towards the end of the original run. And mm-hmm. then we like took a break and then came back to reboot the podcast and the like floodgates right yeah. after like I think we had just recorded the first episode of the reboot maybe when she or like maybe we hadn't even recorded it yet yeah. when she like wrote that essay like right when she had mm-hmm. her sort of like coming out as just a straight up turf like yeah. and yeah. so we very literally like did one version of the podcast where she was like one version of a public figure and Mm -hmm. then, and have now we're making another run of it where we are rereading all of the books with this sort of new version of her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that like the, when we, when we read the books during our initial run of the podcast, we were very much like, you know, like the books have, they have issues, but we can engage with them critically. And the books are, they're still, they still have so much good in them. Mm-hmm. And I would say that this time around, it was a lot. It's tricky, right? Because the content of the books hasn't changed, right. but our, um, our relationship to the ways that the books produce meaning has changed. And yeah. so it's a lot harder to ignore some of the things that I think I might have been willing to give her the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. with or for. I don't, I never know how to finish that sentence. <laughs> I might have been willing about. to give her the benefit of the doubt about a number of things mm-hmm. before she was so like publicly and aggressively transphobic. Mm-hmm. Like I, like it, I think if it was, even if it was like a private opinion that she just kept to herself, it might have been possible to like go the rest of my life without like seeing a lot of hateful content in these novels. But, Mm -hmm. but because of how public she is about it, it just, it, it makes a lot of other things jump out and, and, you know, like you were saying, Jordan, it feels icky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something too about the work of an, uh, so I mean, Laird Butter, we're a film podcast, but we like to talk about other media and how, how it relates to things. And I think that we can turn this into a discussion about film, but there's something mm-hmm. unique about the discussion like around consuming uh, written work because it's such a direct connection with the author. You know, it's not a team of people putting together a vision, it's not a director who's helming like a create, like it's mm. just yeah. the words 
her words coming out of her mind set together mm-hmm. and it's yeah. you're not shielded I mean, in any way from that so it it, it kind of it's kind of a it, team effort yeah yeah marcella <laughs> and i are gonna say exactly the same thing because we're both like materialists who are really interested in the conditions of production you know in film you've got like the auteur theory which is mm-hmm. like a, a particular way of reading film as though it has been singularly crafted by one artistic vision and then lots and lots of people have come along and like problematized that and been like well it doesn't make sense to treat it as the vision of a single individual because there's all of these people the in literature we just never we i mean we have but for the most part we remain attached to this auteur theory where people are like yeah obviously a book is the direct communication of an author's thoughts into my mind Mm. But there are actually lots and lots and lots and lots of people in production and steps Mm -hmm. that happen in between the author writing something down and you reading it Mm -hmm. um, that that fundamentally reshape that text in a very similar way to how film is is a collaborative production. Well, I'm glad you're here to shine a light on that because yeah, I can claim complete ignorance and I still have the idea of, you know, everyone's awaiting like George R. R. Martin and he's plotting away at his his machine in his basement writing up the next book that might never come out. But uh, I, yeah, I have the idea of like the author finishes it and that an editor just deletes things and like, you know, suggests yeah. changes, but that's probably completely not a fair way of. Um, I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't think that, I think if we're, if we're looking at movies and we're looking at books and comparing the two different media, then it's true that I think an author has a lot more um, control, authority. authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> an author of a book is definitely more of an authority on the book than the editor, for sure. It's like there are the team is much smaller. Yeah, there's right. no yeah. CGI. There are no editors. There are no costuming. Yeah, and there dis- are costume actors, designers, right? Which which also yeah. really changes things. But there are developmental editors, line editors, mm-hmm. copy editors typesetters, book designers, marketers, Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff informs what you make of a book, right? Like, Mm -hmm. unless the author is directly handing you an unedited manuscript, you are going through layers and layers and layers of of mediation of that, Mm -hmm. of that text before it arrives at you. Um, And this is kind of where that, that theory that we have been dancing around comes from the idea of the death of the author Mm -hmm. really is about coming to understand that we have a fantasy of texts as providing us with direct access to the author, but they in fact do no such thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that a lot of our, our ability to really read carefully and think about what's happening in a text is restricted if we always think it comes back to, well, the author had an intention, the author meant a particular thing. Mm-hmm. And our job is just to suss out what the author was trying to say. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like yeah. comes from biblical hermeneutics, I think, where it's like, you know, here's this text and this text is sacrosanct because it was written by God and your job is just to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. As, as we kind of approach this, I, I'm wondering... When we find authors like this or say Orson Scott Card or, you know, like whoever it may be that people have an issue with as they read it. If you if if one chooses to no longer continue engaging with that content, I'm wondering your perspective on like, is that a cancellation? 
Like we hear a lot about like cancel culture and all this. And I think sometimes it's just become almost like an empty word at this point that like anything and everything oh, yeah. is like, you know, people being canceled. Mm-hmm. But if, if you make a choice, for example, that, that your perspective has changed on a creator and engaging with their work, like how do you view that? How, do, how, how are, you, are, are you, you viewing that? I, so I personally, um, I don't believe that cancel culture is real, which isn't to say that I am like opposed to the idea of like publicly rejecting like a, a public figure who has said or done something shitty. Mm-hmm. Can I say shitty on your podcast? Yeah, you can yep. say whatever you want. Thank you. Good. I should have <laughs> checked earlier. Um, because uh, because these things are they're they're commodities, they're products, and so like um, and so as much as J.K. Rowling is a is a person as an author and as a public figure, she's also a marketing tool for her right. own products, which are her, mm-hmm. her books and her movies and all of this stuff. So, um, <clears throat> so when somebody says like when somebody says like J.K. Rowling's a turf, I'm not engaging with Harry Potter anymore, then like, you're allowed to do that. Like if I go, if I, if I order pizza from Panago and I get food poisoning and I'm like, I'm not going to Panago anymore. Cause I got food poisoning. Yeah. I'm not yeah, canceling Panago. Cancel Panago myself. <laughs> I'm not canceling pizza, you know? So it's, so it's like, I think, and I think this comes back to, you know, this idea that we have about the author being a, a kind of like sacrosanct sort of, uh, sort of, um, I don't know, like God figure. Mm-hmm. And, and when, and when we, we express any kind of resistance to them or any reluctance to engage in them or any dislike for them, um, then it, it feels, it feels almost blasphemous, but it's not, they are, they are creators of, commodities, some of which are very near and dear to us and feel, they don't feel like commodities. They feel like, like treasured artifacts or like religious artifacts or whatever. Um, But they're just commodities and you're allowed to stop liking a commodity and you're allowed to tell your friends that you got food poisoning from this big (laughs) pizza chain and encourage them to think about whether or not they're going to order pizza from that pizza chain again. I'm not going to stop ordering from Panago. You can't. <laughs> I wonder if, if uh, some people's like pushback against you know, quote unquote cancel culture is more. Mm-hmm. It's not that I won't order pizza from this place. It's that you're a bad, you're a bad person. If you order pizza from there because of my opinions about them. And then yeah. people have this feeling yeah. of like, well, can't we all just make our own choices, but then, I don't know. I, I think that that kind of criticism is fair, too. I mean, but like, it's also kind of bigger than that because, you know, J.K. Rowling is not giving food poisoning to yeah, one the, person. Yeah, the pizza I mean, analogy know, breaks down like, a little bit. Here. Kind of How dare you? <laughs> well, so it's yeah, a little bit like yeah. more complex, I think, to navigate that part. Sure. So there are, there are certainly forms of, um, like, online extreme behavior that manifests in all kinds of ways, including these kinds of like moralistic extremes, right? If you do this, Mm -hmm. you're bad. If you do that, you're good. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Journalists have a tendency to really overrate how much Twitter discourse has to do with the real world. (laughs) And that's because Twitter is mostly journalists. And so 
<laughs> a lot of our media cycle is obsessed with conversations about cancellation and Twitter pylons. Mm. And for the most part, those have no real world consequences to <laughs> anyone. <laughs> and it's just like, it's massively, it's been sort of overinflated. Um, Michael Hobbs talks about this a lot. He talks about cancel culture as a moral panic that has mm. more to do with anxiety about the shifting role of public figures than with, mm. with anything else. And it's often, I think, really interesting from the perspective of somebody who's who's interested in how culture is made to think about how do different industries navigate the problem of public calls to accountability or attempts at cancellation of figures in those communities. So, mm. for example, if you look at a film and you're like, okay, you know, there's this actor and... He has had, you know, multiple <laughs> accusations of sexual violence and domestic violence, you know, that people on Twitter have... Speaking. Hypothetically speaking. A couple come to that, mind. That people on Twitter have very strong opinions about. Mm -hmm. Does that have any consequence for his career? Mm -hmm. it, it very well might not. Um, mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is that um, Hollywood has such a robust production and marketing engine um, in which word of mouth actually plays very little role. Mm. So it kind of doesn't matter. Like once a huge industry has put all of its money and power behind something, even if a bunch of people get really mad about it, it kind of doesn't matter because the machine's already rolling. Do machines roll? Sure. The, it's sure. already, it's already going. Chugging along. Very, mm -hmm. There's very little you can do to get in the way of it. Where a lot of the moral panic around canceling authors comes from is the fact that a lot of publishing looks really different. So do you remember a couple of years ago, this book came out called American Dirt? Yes. Mm -hmm. As a yeah. Hispanic person, very uh, big story in our community. Yeah. 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 White lady writing a book about like you know i the I immigration think th situation yeah, yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and like very sort of sketchily claiming yeah like being like well you know i i am married to an undocumented immigrant but like he was an irish guy who yeah. had overstayed his student visa or something like <laughs> was so shady about it. And mm. there was, you know, massive call-outs and huge, like, just so much, right? There was so much conversation about this. It mm -hmm. had zero impact on the book. That book was yeah. a massive bestseller. It made that publisher a ton of money. Because by the time any of us heard about that book, the bestseller creation engine that makes a book into mm. a bestseller, it was already... It was already firing. There's nothing we can do. I mean, I, I think the controversy arose after it was named either like an Oprah book club book or, mm. or a Reese Witherspoon. So like at that point, the purchases were made before anybody mm -hmm, really yeah. cracked it open, right? 100%. The, it had already the been stickers optioned. were printed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, where we see a lot of sort of freaking out about like people successfully canceling a book. Like if you go and look at like what books have actually been pulled, mm -hmm. those are books that the publisher put almost no marketing money behind and mm -hmm. were depending on word of mouth, particularly via online communities and Goodreads. Because mm -hmm. a lot of publishers have stopped investing in any kind of marketing except where they've decided a book's going to be a bestseller. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so actually, 
Like basically it's, it's a, they've created a non-robust system that has like mm-hmm. a single breakpoint. And so internet trolls can be like, here's this breakpoint. It's Goodreads. Cause that's, right. that's it. And they can all just go on there and tank a book through Goodreads reviews. And then the publisher might as well not publish the book cause nobody will ever find it. Cause Goodreads reviews right. feeds directly into the Amazon algorithm. And if, so if your views are bad, you won't show up on Amazon and then nobody will ever find your book and it might as well not exist. So like these are, these are structural questions about how we make culture and and how we find the culture that we're going to consume much more than their questions about like people being brats on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that the book publishing world had the same issue that movies basically does now where there's the, the missing middle, like there's the big mm-hmm. blockbuster movies, mm-hmm. there's small indie movies that get big, but there's just that, you know, the 40, $50 million yeah. adult thriller that was so mm-hmm. common in yeah. the eighties and nineties. It's just not the like the market for right now. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. The middle has mm-hmm. fallen out of, of book publishing as well, for sure. Not unlike the middle class. <laughs> so, so I want to, so then if we, if we backtrack to something that Hannah was saying at the very beginning of, um, of our chat, she was talking about how like there is on the one end of these extremes, right? There is this, this, you know, group of people who are like the Harry Potter books are silly and you are silly for liking them. And if you didn't know that they were going to be bad and that the author was bad, that's your fault for like being silly or ignorant or whatever. And I think that like, I think that there are, sorry, there's so many loud vehicles outside of my house right now. And I just am so like, (laughs) embarrassed don't worry about, about it anyway. marcel lives across the street from a motorcycle bar <laughs> <laughs> i i also have a very busy road right out here and you know what if our get if our listeners wanted a perfect audio experience they'd go listen to this, this will not be, again it's like you know as jordan mentioned last week we served them uh some some interesting audio like yeah. this is three steps above i think we've great, already great. we've already cut out everyone who yeah. is like an audio file so okay so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that there are a lot of different ways. This is going to sound really um, trite, but there are a lot of different ways that we engage with media. There's a lot of different ways that we as individuals engage with culture. And we all have a lot of like, we all have a lot of decisions that we need to make all the time about what, what is okay for us and what is not okay for us. And I think it sounds to me like there's a there's an important difference between um, raising awareness about the ways in which an author has hurt people and being mean to people who like a particular cultural product. Sometimes sometimes those things overlap, (laughs) but not always. And I think that in the case with J.K. Rowling, especially what. I mean, at least I think we've what at least Hannah and I have seen is over the years, people very generously, very attentively, very willingly trying to call her in to have conversations to be like, listen, these are things that are not okay. We love your books. We want to talk to you. And her going from 5,000 chances. Yeah. And so and then her going from like um, just blocking to all of a sudden being like, I'm being attacked in public for my beliefs and it's unfair and yeah lady you make 
so much money and you have dedicated your spare time to making it hard for people to use the bathroom. Like, mm-hmm. why? This, this isn't unfair. Yeah. You know, you've used a, a term a few times there, uh, calling calling someone in, which I'm not familiar with, but I, I guess I can understand it from context. It's like calling out, but from a, a friendly point of yeah. like, I'm yeah. going to quietly call you in. And like when you, uh, I was going to say when you... <laughs> I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but guys will quietly let each other know if their fly is undone. And it's like, a hey, <laughs> hey, buddy, like, I want to oh, call you in on this to not call yeah, you out. Like, but hey, come, mm-hmm. come over, come over here. I have to tell you something. Yeah. Like a call out will be often public and just like, I am going to publicly state this person's causing harm. And mm-hmm. a call out usually is about drawing attention to harm that somebody is is causing mm-hmm. without necessarily still wanting to maintain a relationship or maybe not even acknowledging that you had a relationship to that person in the first place. Whereas Mm -hmm. a call in is about saying like, I recognize you as part of my community Mm -hmm. and I don't, I'm not trying to shame you or embarrass you or get you in trouble. I just want to have a conversation with you about this thing. Mm -hmm. In the case of rolling, I mean, she's gotten both. She's gotten, Mm -hmm. you know, wild Twitter pylons and that is, in part just a function of being a woman on the internet, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it yeah. sucks. Um, but she has also had so many, so many people like the most famous trans people in the world are lining up to sit down and have a loving, gentle five hour long conversation with JK Rowling. Like she um. has had every chance a person could possibly have to learn and and correct and like be you know like people so badly wanted her so mm-hmm. badly wanted her to see the error of her ways and mm-hmm. like that people were not like lining up to cancel her because people love these books so they yeah. wanted her to like get her shit together mm-hmm. yeah. so i mean i guess if we wanted to just talk about how we do engage with that. I know you, you two have sort of shared your, your thoughts on your new podcast season and how that's going. Um, Marcel, have you given thoughts to whether you introduce the books to your, your children? Are you going to read them? <laughs> it? Like, <laughs> I have such a complicated relationship with these books. Um, my, yeah, uh, my, my daughter is, uh, six and a half, a little bit more than six and a half. And I was basically from the point where like, I knew I was pregnant. I was ready. I was like, we're gonna, we're gonna be a Harry Potter family and it's we gonna be adorable. We a Harry Potter themed baby shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was very tender. And we have been reading the books. Um, we have the, we have the illustrated, the first four illustrated ones. Um, and this is, I think, I mean, this is probably why I'm, I'm so loosey goosey about like, well, you know, like everybody's got to make the decision that works best for them is because the decision that I've made is that I, I want to share the parts of this world that are, that are beautiful and meaningful to me with my, with my kids. But I also want my kids to like, be aware that, that the author has caused harm and that she's very hateful and, and that, 
she may in particular have personal vendettas against my beautiful children, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's, um, it's, it's really tricky. And I, I would never say that the decisions that I made and what works for me, um, will work for everyone because different people are going to experience different levels of hurt based on the things that J.K. Rowling has said. Like I'm a cis woman. And so I have not been, uh, directly, impacted by these hateful things that she said, but I am an ally and a member of the extended like queer and trans community. And so I do take very seriously the fact that like these things that she says are impactful and they're hurtful and they are, they literally make a difference. People see the things that this beloved author has said and think like, yeah, yeah, and mm. and and that's why and that's why it's a problem. It's not the personal beliefs of somebody who nobody cares about. It's the very it's the very public agitating activist beliefs of someone who actively wants people to have fewer rights. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder and um, I wonder if these are waters that are more difficult to navigate because she's currently actively doing it. As opposed to, say, someone like Roald Dahl or, like, other controversial people that are, Mm -hmm. like, long gone, right? Yes. And or is it also because it's, like, something that, especially for people that grew up with Harry Potter, it's, like, something that's so, so, like, emotionally, we Mm -hmm. have so much emotional investment in it. And all of a sudden it's, like, you know, you're you're confronted with the reality that the person, again, maybe you're attributing too much uh, uh, of this power to this, like, one author – but I'm wondering, like, does does any of that come into play? Do you think, like, when when you're trying to to navigate, like, you know, what what do I do with with this versus what do I do with with another book that w- may have been written by someone as controversial or differently mm. controversial in the past, or that you have less attachment to? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think as literature scholars in particular, and I I know film scholars are in the same boat. Like, we engage with problematic things all the time, constantly. Like, Like, talking about a thing is not a sign-off that you approve of the morality of everybody who made that thing. That Mm. would be wild. Um, So we, you know, we study and we talk about Shakespeare. Like, those plays just are action-packed with horrifying things. You know, but but we still talk, you know, we read... We, we watch classic films that we like, we watch Hitchcock, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're beautiful, stunning works of art. And he was a monster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he was absolutely. a horrible person who mm-hmm. like emotionally abused women. Tortured like, his actresses. Absolutely. And we know that and we engage with the work and we engage with the work in light of knowledge that we have around its context of production. And one of those contexts mm-hmm. of production is, is who this who this director was. And, you know, we, we know how to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it is complicated when we are dealing with living creators mm-hmm. in a contemporary capitalist context in mm-hmm. which kill the author all you want. Theoretically, the real, the reality is that the author holds a huge amount of cultural weight Mm-hmm. Um, that by virtue of being the author of popular books, they are given a public platform and are taken seriously. And that when you buy things 
that are related to their IP, it puts money in their pockets. And they are using that money to try to take away people's human rights right now. I, 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 I want you guys to know, I was devastated to learn that J.K. Rowling makes money from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Like, we, we got to go when my kiddo was two, and all I have wanted since is to go back. And fortunately, the pandemic happened, and I haven't had the opportunity, and so I didn't have to, like, and, yeah, I know, right? I know. And so I didn't have to, like, wrestle with my own demons about whether or not I would take my now, like, like at the time, like, four-year-old or, or whatever, mm-hmm back to this place that brought me so much joy to be in but she but she does she makes money from it and that's a lot that's, and that's what makes it very different from say like yeah roll doll's dead he doesn't care if you pick up his if you pick up a copy of the witches like yeah he was mm. a raging anti-semite but like that's not he's yeah I mean, in, you know? in music terms, we, uh, we've we talked about this in the podcast before, but yeah. it's the difference between engaging with Michael Jackson's work versus like R. Kelly or something, you mm-hmm. know, like yeah. you can have complicated feelings about Jackson, but you can also know that like the man himself is not perpetuating any more harm into the world mm-hmm. personally. That mm-hmm. said, there might be an argument to be made that like hearing his songs could be an issue for like for survivors mm-hmm. or, you know I mean? There's, mm-hmm. there's still a conversation there, yeah. but you can at least say that like, it's not directly putting money in his pocket in the same way that, yeah. you know, we wouldn't maybe want to do with R. Kelly or. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Like it, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity around this conversation, particularly when you're dealing with art that is created by a lot of different people and figuring out, you know, it starts to feel like those infographics that you see that are like, here are the 735 sub brands that are owned by Nestle. And it is yeah. your, your, <laughs> Personal Ugh. obligation as a consumer to never buy any of these things. Otherwise, you are supporting Nestle and it means you love them. And that is like, that's so hard in late capitalism. This fantasy of like fully extricating yourself from the entanglement of your complicity in mm-hmm. like deeply harmful systems. Like, mm. I can't, you know, I, I feel like the good place is like, I was the just going to say. <laughs> The best representation of this that's like the only way you can do that is to go live in the woods in a cabin where you grow your yeah. own beans and eat those beans. Like, yeah. that's it. We're, we're um, too linked. We're too uh, interconnected with each other. Exactly. Really, yeah. Which doesn't mean it's not worth trying. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't try to make ethical choices. When people say there is no ethical consumption There's under no capitalism. That doesn't mean give up and don't bother. Yeah. That yeah. means that means don't set as the bar perfection. Mm-hmm. But but some cases are more straightforward than others. Yep. And I and I got to <laughs> say when when somebody says to me like I'm just going to continue buying Harry Potter stuff cuz I don't want to think critically about it. I'm like well that kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Like what a, I'm not gonna cancel you because how could I? I don't don't I don't think you can actually cancel people. I don't mm. think those those <laughs> engines work very well. But um, 
I do think it sucks, but like, mm-hmm. yeah. that's my, I'm allowed to think other people's ethical choices. Suck. Yeah. And I, th- I think oh, it's yeah. fair to say that you might not, you might not think that they are, you know, a turf themselves or anti-trans, but you could at the very least mm-hmm. say that they are inconsiderate and unthoughtful of their actions in the world mm-hmm. in the same way that yeah. if you said like, oh, hey, did you know that, you know, every, I don't know, every time you eat McDonald's, they're like the French fries are actually made out of penguins, like shouldn't eat <laughs> McDonald's. And then it's like, if we found out that was true, like, I don't know, it wouldn't be that like, hard to give up McDonald's like, for the penguins. What a hilarious but... extreme, because they... <laughs> The burgers are made out of an animal. Like, you don't have to <laughs> pretend. Yeah, they're passing penguins uh, off as potatoes, and that's the scam. But I think, like, what... I, I don't know. I think that we are all just... We are all so exhausted and so just stretched threadbare mm-hmm. in this you know, point of society where it's like constant news bombardment, constant bad news bombardment, everything that we are learning just feels, the stakes always feel so high. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have this really, um, I think it's a really fair and really natural instinct to double down either on our um, rejection of or our embracing of. Um, yeah, like I said, I think that's natural, but I don't think that it's helpful, and I and I don't think that it's particularly um, pro- productive to use a kind of <laughs> to use a kind of capitalist term. Um, and every like, I think that when we, <clears throat> I think that when we as individuals continue to purchase things with dubious ethical connections. Um, we we might feel very like threatened by learning about those dubious ethical connections. Um, but I, all all we can really do is all we can really do is like hear the criticisms that people have and then think about what it is that we can do ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I I don't know why I'm being so like everybody's everybody's a good person inside because that's not true some people are just like fundamentally mean um i think everyone is the main character of their own story and maybe that's fair to say everyone's their own protagonist not all protagonists some people are are anti-heroes and some people are unreliable narrators Mm -hmm. except in the excellent novel interior chinatown which is in fact about not being the main character in your story Very good mm, novel. Recommend it. Ooh, Sounds for great. film nerds in particular, the entire thing is written as a film script. I wrote as that a, title down. I'm as, checking it out as soon as, as, uh... as a as <laughs> a as a TV script. It's about like the the sort of the way the constant representation of Asian American characters as side characters like impacts the sort of subjectivity of the protagonist. It's super good. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. The point is, Marcel, that mm-hmm. I think that you are somebody who thinks really seriously about the reality of ethics and the reality of ethics Mm. is that they are constant navigations and negotiations with the Mm. complexity of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would be really nice to just be hand, you know, to have Jordan Peterson hand you 10 rules 
for life and you could yeah. just follow you could just follow those and be like great got it thanks for stripping all the complexity out for me i hate well, thinking for myself it's probably uh, oh sorry go ahead Marcel. I, I, I just i just i just realized what my point was <laughs> i have this awful tendency to like start talking and then get all meandering and then cut myself off and then forget my points are just like i just did right now my the whole point the whole reason that i'm saying like everybody just needs to think about it is because that's just that's literally all i want all I want is for people to like spend five minutes thinking about what it is that they're consuming. Like when you learn something shitty about a thing that you love, I'm not saying you have to throw it in the garbage. I'm just saying take a minute and think about it. And once you have thought about what you want your relationship to the thing to be, then you can make a decision. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think I like I, I often try to have uh the most amount of empathy I can for people that act wrong. Um, because I think a lot about like who I was as a young person oh, and, you know, being same. deeply closeted and saying things that were probably homophobic, being a homosexual person. And it's like, I'm not trying to like saying that th these are excuses. I'm just saying that there's been a lot of learning that I've done oh, yeah. myself. And it, if I judged myself by, by the, 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 like my understanding of like ethics and morals today, I probably would fall short. And so I think there's always like a distinction between trying to understand the context in which this person is and then also understanding that, for example, somebody like JK, who is like giving oh, every door has been open to try to <laughs> see a path to the middle and like she's shut every door. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think, that you know, like I, I, I always like you're saying, you know, I, like when you encounter somebody uh, some or some someone that's related to like a, a piece of art that you like, whether it be a movie or a book or something. Just, you know, pausing and trying to learn more and doing the best you can to to figure out all the context before you, you take a drastic decision one way or another, I think is like really important. But then like once you have that context, I think you're able to make a lot more of an informed decision as to how you want to engage with that if you want to engage with that mm -hmm. going yeah. further. Yeah. Totally. You're, you're yeah. making me think of a thing I've heard um, fabulous uh, comedian Guy Branham say a number of times, which is that <laughs> we have this tendency in North America, you know, he's talking mainly about American culture, but I think, I think we certainly do it as well, um, <laughs> to have a sort of deliberate historical amnesia about the way that political conversations have changed. Mm. Um, and, and thus to, like, have these extremes either of, like, I never thought that bad thing, like that bad <laughs> thing that you're not supposed to think now. I never thought it and pretend mm. that you've never learned anything and that culture has never changed. Mm -hmm. Or... <laughs> To do the opposite, which is this kind of like, well, back in the day, nobody knew any better. And the thing is, again, <laughs> neither of those are true, right? That like one is this like absolute, you know, people say, I don't even heard this like, like, oh, well, you know, back in the 19th century, people were just racist and they didn't know any better. And it's like, <laughs> no, white people. Yeah. You were talking about white people. I assure you. <laughs> Everybody who was a victim of colonialism and systemic racism definitely knew better. Yeah. Was for sure. Yeah. Like, could you stop, please? And white people were like, nah, thanks. And we, we, we love this system. And there's ample historical evidence of people being like, hey, you know this thing that we are doing as white people? Should we be doing it? And some people being like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, we don't even need to. We don't even need to go that far back. Like what you're saying is no. happening now. There's people now that have like enough information and context to know that this is wrong, and yeah. they're still like, no, this yeah. is fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's we have to we have to understand how change happens, 
Um, or I would like us to understand how change happens, which is like change happens because some people know a thing is wrong and they work really, really hard to convince mm. everyone else that it's wrong. And slowly the baseline of the conversations and values we have shifts. So like that tells us two things. It tells us one that actually you can change things mm. Um the, the conversation I see people, uh, the example I see people using a lot lately is conversations around um, police abolition, mm -hmm. which was like 10 years ago, just like not a conversation that was being had publicly at all. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't magically start being had overnight. It has been like decades of black political organizing that yeah. has gotten us to the point where that can be a conversation people can have. And then, you know, so you have to understand like change happens because people work hard to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to be a person who learned something. Yeah. Oh, it's okay yeah. to not have known something 10 years ago and to now know it. And in fact, it, it respects more the people who taught you that thing. To be like, mm -hmm. I didn't know it. And then somebody taught it to me. And now I know it. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea of that, that shifting of, not the shifting, but the progressivism that like, you know, it's easy for us to look back now on sitcoms of the 90s where we're like, oh, uh, this like, you know, this over the top gay character is mm -hmm. or like every homophobic joke in friends. Yeah, exactly. Like mm -hmm. You know, where there's these jokes, but like. To to just look at that as the negative is to lose sight of the fact that like they were talking about people, they were acknowledging people as being part mm -hmm. of a society. They weren't being great at acknowledging them as like fully formed mm -hmm. human beings, but it was it was a step, and it was a step that like you know, maybe the Golden Girls made when they were progressive with a lot of their episodes. That mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like going back to early TV where it was not acknowledged, not talked about, and like criminalized behavior in society. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, we were talking last week and even the week before I was mentioning that I saw Joe Heartstopper and I read like the web comic like in all in one sitting and I was saying like it's it's so weird to me to see um coming out and like a lot of, and there's still some degree of like say trauma in it, you know, like there there there's like outings and so on, but like generally it's like a very positive story to process and like when I write my fiction or I think about like fiction related to like my coming out, it, there's like it's so much like not darker or gritty, but like, you know, it's like so much more intertwined with like personal trauma that I don't want to say is like non-existent now because especially like, you know, we're talking probably about like in places where the specific pockets where it is like a much more, um, not, I don't want to say acceptable, but like, you know, like something that, that is happening more often. And so they're, they're learning the language to process these things. Mm -hmm. That's not the reality everywhere. There's still places where it is totally. like, uh, you know, criminalized mm -hmm. and so on. But I just, you know, sometimes you just need to pause and see how much media has changed, like in the last 10 years or 20 mm -hmm. years or 30 years in my case. And like, yeah. you know, I went through that story and seeing like the type of story that they're putting out now and kind of getting that perspective that like, yeah, change is sometimes gradual and it's easy to kind of like mm -hmm. ignore or forget, but it has been happening since you know, every day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the most um, incredible and valuable things about doing like uh, doing historical studies of, of media and of pop culture in particular, because, you know, like you guys are saying, it can show us how, how it can show us how culture has shifted. Right. 
because I like a terrible example, but I remember when Katy Perry's song, um, I kissed a girl came out and I remember hearing it and being like, Whoa, this would never have been on the radio five years ago. And a friend of mine being like, but it's not a good song. And I was like, that's not the point. The point is that we're at, we, we've reached a moment in, in like social recognition of, of sexuality as being a spectrum that this song is on the radio. It's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. And so, and now how many years later we've got like, you know, Lil Nas X. Mm-hmm. Making, yeah. making videos where he's like giving the devil a lap dance, and it's like, yeah, you know what? The baseline shifts. The baseline. And there's still there's still great. a lot of pearl clutching, but like the pearl clutching before was just at the mention of the word gay. Now we've gone yeah. all the way where it's like lap yeah. dance to the devil is what causes the pearl clutching. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know the the flip side of that is like I think anybody who is like part of a minoritized community has had the experience of somebody saying like, we don't, we didn't know better back then and being like, mm-hmm. I did. Like mm-hmm. I still remember having mm-hmm. a conversation with somebody about Marcel and I were very publicly against um, a very Potter musical, which is a beloved <gasps> fan produced musical. Superstar, I think is it was super kids. Some, some Star whiz, kids? Whiz kids, star kids, they're, star, they're, kids? star kids. kids. One yeah. of the two. Yeah. 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 Um, canceled really really beloved in the harry potter fandom um in which we watched for the first time you know on the request of of our listeners and we were like guys this is trash Mm -hmm. um and a lot of people have sort of come back and been like well you know it was 2009 nobody knew any better it was 2009 guys (laughs) okay in 2009, I was beginning a PhD in feminist literature. Like, I, I assure you, I assure you we knew better. I was teaching undergraduates in the classroom. I was actively teaching people to know better. Like, there's no, like, sure, it was acceptable, but, like, that doesn't mean you couldn't have known I I promise you I remember 2009. Yeah, it's definitely a shield of, like, you know, I was ignorant. I, I couldn't have known better. I didn't have any opportunities to know better. And yeah. in some cases, it, it really, what they're actually saying is, I wasn't listening to anyone who had a problem mm-hmm. with it at the time. I yeah. wasn't aware mm-hmm. of people's issues or I, you know, I ignored yeah. issues. Yeah. So I, I'm a I'm a big comic book nerd. And like in 2003 or so, there's like this issue of Supergirl where Superman is exposed to pink kryptonite and pink kryptonite uh, turns him gay. And the, 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 and also, like, it's like, really into like interior design. Exactly. I was going to say, and he gets like, oh, it's, I was like, that's the concept of gay people they had in 2003, which is like wild because it really obviously so isn't. Recent. <laughs> it's like not at all far. Right. So oh, man. It's, sometimes it's really bizarre to look at media and you know, yeah, that, that excuse can only get you so far. So like, so, and, and yeah. And so to that, I would say if somebody's like, well, we didn't know better and be like, well, you know now. Okay, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. fine. You didn't know then. Okay. I don't sure. know if I buy that, but sure. But you know now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, don't I think make me watch of, it. <laughs> that's kind of the kindness of what you're saying of calling people in. It's like, like meeting them halfway and saying, okay, like maybe you didn't, mm. like maybe you should have, but you didn't. But like yeah. here, I'm telling you now, like where, where does, where does that make you land now? Like, how do you feel about yeah. that now? Yeah, I mean, that's where a lot of people will put up their defenses. And to, mm-hmm. uh, I, so, uh, Hannah, you had sent us an article before um, the recording 
Um, so it's a, an article called Don't Let People Enjoy Things by uh, Kate Wagner <laughs> on uh, The Baffler. And we can include a link to this. Um, we don't have to run through the entire idea of it, but there's basically it comes down to the the meme that everyone's seen of the one person kind of squishing the other person's mouth and saying, shh, like, let people enjoy things. It's a very common, uh, it's not even defense. It's basically just a reaction to criticism that people will throw mm-hmm. out. Like, hey, nerd, you're overcomplicating stuff. Just let people enjoy the things that they like. Mm-hmm. And a, a big part of the article is just the fact that people become defensive of the critique of things because they identify with that thing. Um, and everyone do it. And for some people that identification is part of a, uh, it's part of a shield. It's part of a a sense of belonging. It's, you know, theater kids who get really into theater in high school because they find a group that they belong to. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly an attack against that is an attack against their identity. Um, not all Mm -hmm. belonging to a group is, necessarily bad but it does all it it does leave you open to um this you know sense of feeling attacked when the art that Mm -hmm. you identify with is critiqued which Mm -hmm. just i don't know i don't think that's fair but i would wanted to let you you speak to that article since you're the one who sent it i mean yeah i love that article marcel knows i reference it constantly but i think Mm -hmm. it does such a good job of sort of summarizing the role of critique particularly in relation to these really large cultural properties that have so much like money and power behind them. Um, But that really like when we get down to it, so much of that, that um, struggle people have with receiving or processing critique of a beloved property is about the way that we sort of not only fashion our own identities, but build our communities around Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. properties that, that for a lot of us who came of age in the early days of the internet, you know, we did build a lot of our early communities and early relationships around particular kinds of fandoms. Mm -hmm. And so it can feel really, really difficult to find out that something is wrong with that fandom or to have you, somebody tell you Mm -hmm. that something is wrong with that fandom. And, and I think what can be really useful there again is this this piece that is the death of the author, which which in this case is separating out the sort of lived world of that community and what it means to the people in it from mm-hmm. the property itself. So, you know, on which please we talk a lot about the distinction between what the fandom is doing with the Harry Potter world versus, mm-hmm. you know, support of rolling herself. Because the fandom is, you know, this diverse and vibrant community that includes a lot of queer and trans creators that includes a lot of people writing a lot of fan fiction, making a lot of fan art really critically engaging with this property in a way that is about, um, you know, finding ways to put themselves back into it. And that, that is like really, really beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can do all of that without putting money into JK Rowling's pocket. Um, yeah. that it is totally possible to to do both of those things at the same time. And I think, I think too, or I shouldn't say I think, I would, I would also like to believe that, that this universe and this fandom will continue without her in the same way that like, we might think about how, 
Doctor Who took a real conservative turn for a little while and got, like, not super fun, but now all of a sudden is, like, very promising and very exciting again yeah. for a lot of for a lot of fans and like i know like the peter capaldi years i know i was like i i wanted i wanted to be into them and i couldn't i didn't even like the final matt smith year and i loved matt smith as the doctor and i just got to a point where i was like this is it's not um this show isn't doing the things that it can do given <laughs> the universe that it has Put into being, mm-hmm. um, and oh, I mean, surprise! Stephen Moffat went away, <laughs> and now the show's really gay again. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is exciting. Hmm. I, Marcella, I, I also have been thinking about getting back into Doctor Who. Oh, oh same, same. As soon as they announced like the new Doctor Who and the new companion, I'm like, yeah, it might be worth checking out. That's what's great about a series like that is that ability to, like you said, it reinvents itself literally with new like actors and playing mm-hmm, the same character. Yeah. But then the people writing it change and it, it just shifts and suddenly you can say it doesn't have to be. You don't have to take it all or leave it all. You can mm-hmm. say, I really like these seasons. I like these odd episodes. I don't skip this. Who cares? Like, yeah. you know, you don't have to take yeah. it all. You don't have to, in, the, in the way in the future. We might tell people like Game of Thrones, like. Those first three seasons, great. Maybe they're worth in, like getting into. Know that it's not going to be satisfying. <laughs> know that it's full of a bunch of like issues. But then, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's ways that we can deal with that. Or yeah, yeah. You watch the first season of Twin Peaks. You don't watch the second. There's no need. <laughs> I'll is, tell you who thing. killed Laura Palmer. I you don't like, need to watch the second. I season. have like a Twin Peaks fan, like friendly <laughs> fan, and I'm like, it's just like I feel like I can't. Com- I, I just want to watch the beginning and not continue after. It's like, no, you have to watch everything. No, you really don't. I skipped most of season I'm two. Here to tell you. You I don't. didn't watch the the movie. I really like season three. So you can do. I've been you given want. permission. I'm gonna do it then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I gotta say, any anybody who, and this is ripe coming from somebody who used to be a literature professor, but anybody who tells you that there's a right and a wrong way to engage with culture, like, there's a lot of policing around, like, how we engage things in this, like, oh, well, you can't watch that if you haven't watched this, and you're not a completist if you haven't done this, and you mm-hmm. have to, and that's all gatekeeping. Like, that's all about drawing boundaries around a community so that some people can't participate in it. And yeah. honestly, like, I don't know, like, I I have lots of friends who still consume Harry Potter content and are, like, actively vocally against Rowling's politics. You know, I feel like Marcel and I draw a particularly hard line because we are making money off a Harry Potter podcast. And yeah. so it is really important to us that we are not advocating for people to consume that work that we are not like that no mm. none of our actions result in more money going to jk rowling or more cultural power go to jk rowling like that's something that we have to navigate in a very particular way mm-hmm. um and it's not going to be exactly the same for like trans fans right who mm-hmm. of yeah. harry potter who who, you know, as Marcel put it once, like, she's taken enough from you. You can engage with this however you want. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there is something to be said about not letting a fan base, like, 
you know, if everyone who had an issue with J.K. Rowling just said, okay, Harry Potter is dead to us and we are just going to never engage with it, then it is sort of throwing all of that to the worst people and they will revel in it and they will make it their own and they won't let it go. All and of a sudden Voldemort's the hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like we'll get the rewrite of the books and then it'll it'll just be in a weird world. So mm-hmm. that's not to say that you have to stay engaged with something, but... I don't know. That is a, I think it's a perfectly gray area. It's a great um, note to end on for this conversation. Um, uh, Yeah. I like this conversation a lot. We went in some, uh, you know, we went down some really interesting paths (laughs) and I think it was exactly as murky and weird as this topic has to be to do it justice. So (laughs) hopefully our listeners have a good, like interesting perspective of um, don't, don't be the things that you like. Uh, forgive Mm, others for their own media consumption um judge authors all you want what are the other bullet point takeaways (laughs) that (laughs) yeah 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 do your thing think about it first but do it do your thing think about it first think about it after be open to other people's thoughts about it if they are different from yours uh yeah 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 good advice marcel thank you so much for 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 joining us this week um, is there anything you guys want to plug? Any place where people can follow you, learn more about you? Oh my goodness. We have a podcast. Um, it's called Witch Please. We would just love it if we could steal your listeners and they could become our listeners too. That would be amazing. How do you recommend our listeners get... I, I never know with new podcasts. Do you go back to episode one? Do you just listen to the most recent? Oh, is there a oh, new a season to jump into? Where should people start? Hmm. Hannah, what do you think? I recommend that people start at the beginning of the reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be uh, uh, like book one, episode one that was mm-hmm. released in September 2020. Okay. It's on mm-hmm. chosen one narratives. That's right. So I would recommend that people at least start there. Um, mm-hmm. But so like the original runs still online and you can go back and people love it, but it's a little a little quirkier. Um, yeah. And we did a lot of learning ourselves yeah. in that first run. And so even now when we go back and we listen to old episodes, you know, for, for Patreon perks and stuff like that, we're like, we use Ooh. this language and now we yeah. know better, but we didn't yeah. at the time, but now we do. Yeah. The um, context yeah. is ever evolving. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But you can actually really like each episode has a different, topic like a different focus and you can Mm -hmm. listen to them in whatever order pleases you so you can just scroll through and if there's a episode titled that intrigues you you can just jump right in there Mm -hmm. great and do either of you have uh, personal social media accounts that you would encourage listeners to if they liked your opinions here that they could go get more of somewhere else or uh you can follow the podcast at oh which please on twitter and instagram Mm -hmm. um I am also on Twitter at HKP McGregor. Um, but if you disagreed with me, don't tell me. I don't <laughs> that, that's uh, my sign off, too. It's like uh, I'm on Letterboxd. If you don't like my film reviews, don't let me know. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. Marcel, wanna what about you? Um, I, for legal reasons, am not allowed to use Twitter anymore. But I do have some solid gold archived content on there. So if Perfect. you wanted to go and read my old chef's kiss tweets. You are welcome to do that. The handle is at Cosmin8R, like Cosminator, 
<laughs> Just a little taste of the content <laughs> the, the right solid there. humor. There you go. Um, well, uh, when we come back, we're going to have our hot butter takes and our uh, film club of the week. But we're going to go to a quick break. The Layered Butter Podcast is brought to you by Red Squirrel Tail. To learn more about them, let's hear from the founder. Hi, I'm Allison, and I create handmade needle felt animals under the name Red Squirrel Tail. I make custom dogs, cats, and woodland creatures like chipmunks, squirrels, and birds. I create ornaments and handmade wreaths inspired by nature and wildlife. If you're looking for a thoughtful handmade gift any time of year, visit my website at redsquirreltail.com. Hey everyone, quick disclaimer, uh, we recorded this episode before the most recent news about Kevin Spacey came out, uh, the point we are making about uh, art that may be worth checking out by someone who is controversial still remains, however, we spoke about it with a lot more levity than we would have had we known that it would have been in the recent news and potentially you know, upsetting people who are finding out about it. And we're back. Uh, Raf, we had a wonderful conversation with Hannah and Marcel about controversial creators. So I wanted to ask you, if you had a movie rec for this week that people can go check out, I want um, a, a piece of art that you find important from somebody that is in some way problematic, canceled, whatever word you want to use. It's really hard here because I think this specific filmmaker slash actor um, has an amazing body of work. But <laughs> I mean, like, it's hard to narrow it to, to one. So I'm going to... Maybe I'll, I'll do a very obscure one, but you could check out his body of work. Mr. Kevin Spacey, who mm. <laughs> who was recently, um, not recently, I think it's been a couple years, um, who had a sexual assault allegation, right? Um, mm. um, uh, he His work was stunning in House of Cards. And for me, one of the films that stood out to me when I was younger is a film called K-Pax. Have you guys heard of this? K-Pax. I think we I, talked about this very briefly on this podcast. Like you, I remember K-Pax. I don't know if I saw it or it was definitely came out at the right time of when I was an alien. Of I mean, Kevin Spacey's an alien in this movie, right? And he's trying to, I guess, um, like a psychologist are trying to uh, uh, understand him and um, uh, see what his outlook on life is and what I think it's Jeff Bridges but this mm-hmm. was like a couple of years ago in like 2001 but I remember getting that film from a um, from like a blockbuster and watching it with my parents and I loved it and then I became such a big fan of Kevin Spacey LA Confidential um, uh, American Beauty 7 I mean this guy's great Returns yes uh, oh my god Brandon Ruth role is Lex Luthor yeah, that's whack. But I mean, here's my thing. Kevin Spacey's great. Um, what he did is not great. <laughs> uh, he's coming back this year in 2022 with two films, or is it next year? But he's trying to come back. I don't know how successful that would be. This is very hard, guys. All right? Mm-hmm. But I think Kevin Spacey was um, very influential in what he, what he, what his career had. Was Capex directed by Asghar Farhadi? 
Um, because there is an entire plagiarism section in the Wikipedia. <laughs> of what, K-Pops? <laughs> yes. No way! <laughs> yes, it says that it was apparently stolen from some Argentinian director that ended up having to withdraw. Anyways, maybe you're just a this. fan of plagiarized movies. Not this. Oh, shit, you're right. Listen, it, uh, the director said it was a copy, but a good quality one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that's my Kevin Spacey uh, memory. Okay, so you know it's time now for our hot takes. Uh, Ralph, why don't you kick us off? What's on on your mind Listen, this week? This is my thing. Um, this this weekend we tried watching a comedy mm-hmm. <laughs> senior year with Rebel Wilson, and we turned it right. off in twenty minutes. And I started thinking to myself, okay, so if the regular comedy isn't doing much for us today. How about the adult comedy? Because right after that, like uh, I think the next day, I put on South Park and I started thinking to myself, is there any adult comedy movies that are coming out anymore? I feel like this is a world that could come back. I think the last adult comedy movie I watched was Sausage Party. I have a question. You, what's um, your definition of yeah, adult exactly. comedy? This yeah, is a, <laughs> Rebel Wilson is not appealing to the TikTok crowd, I don't think. No, no, I'm, no. But I meant like adult animation comedy. I'm sorry. Rated R. Yes. Rated R animation, stop motion, uh, something I mean, like that. I, sorry. I totally forgot to like put that in there. That I think Rick, Rick and Morty probably falls into that camp of um, adult animation, right? But I feel like it needs to make a comeback. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like even animation. The South Park is still on the air, as is. It is. The it is. But I mean, give me like an eighty-minute film. Eighty minutes. Can you believe that, Rod? I said eighty minutes. No. Give me an eighty-minute animated comedy, adult-oriented or adult-themed, and I feel like you're gonna have me back in the seats, right at the cinema. I feel like it's been years since I've seen anything along those lines. I think it was. Re- I think it was Sausage Party. I don't know. Yeah, I think everything's gone to the, the like TV. Yeah, they're doing short form, right? But yeah. I, I, I feel like you know maybe Trey Parker and Matt Stone need to wake up and then do something else. But mm-hmm. I mean, uh, give me another comedy. Give me an original IP or something. Just give yeah, me something. Like com- Tuka and Birdie, a fantastic animated series. Um, I guess BoJack by extension. Yeah, BoJack, uh, the Venture Brothers, which just wrapped up seven seasons in like twenty years. But this is TV. I'll give I know, you like it's... a movie. <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, Movies are I... just too hard. They're too hard to make their budget back. Well, I don't know. What? I guess they're having. Well, no, the Bob's Burgers movies. That's pretty. That's pretty family. I mean, I, I would say that's not R rated, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah, need like, like Bob is going to turn into Archer mid movie. <laughs> I mean, that's my take. I think there needs to be a return of the adult um, animated comedy, right? Um, with big casts uh, and raunchy comedy. I feel like that is that's something that we've been missing. I don't know. I see a, a tweet from Variety saying Leslie Jones is star in adult animated comedy and works at work. Oh, shit. There you go. Hmm. So look at that from your uh, mouth to God's ears, apparently. But just Leslie Jones? <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing there's going to be more people attached to it. I hope I don't so. Just okay. a random tweet I saw. Just All right. right I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, Jordan, what's up with you? What, what's on your mind this week? Uh, what's on, I mean, maybe just talking about problematic creators and stuff like that. It's uh, it's also, you know, be, becoming nicer weather-wise. And I've got uh, an American werewolf in London on the mind, which I feel like I've talked about before in this because I really like this movie. But it's, uh, so it's a movie from, uh, what year is this from? 80s in America, 81 maybe, 80, sometime in the 80s. Um, and it's directed by John Landis, 
uh, who's known for a couple of Max Landis. No, well, he's known for Max Landis. His <laughs> son, I guess. Um, <laughs> his son, Sorry. Max Landis, is a accused. Uh, he was a writer. Uh, he wrote uh, Bright, I think, a couple other movies. Um, but John Landis is. Uh, he's known for a bunch of things. I mean, he's a director. He directed National Lampoon's Animal House, The Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Three Amigos, Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, oh, Michael Jackson's uh, music video for Thriller, another problematic creator in the mix. Anyway, in American Werewolf of London, um, I love it. It's a really good movie. It's funny. It's weird. It's actually horrific. It's a little bit scary. It's got the best werewolf transformation on film. Uh, it's an hour and a half. Um, oh, I forgot to even say what John Landis was problematic for. He directed, uh, a segment of the twilight zone movie, uh, in, I think that was in the eighties where a tragic stunt happened during filming, um, largely probably due to people like John Landis, not taking things seriously. Uh, they had children on set who shouldn't have been working that late. A helicopter um, crashed uh, due to dangerous stunt work that they were doing. And it killed two chill child actors and an adult actor. Um, the whole stunt captured on film, uh, awful, horrific time. And John Landis spent a lot of time. I don't want to say ducking responsibility, but it feels like he didn't want to be responsible for it. Um, uh, that, that and that's a real issue, but in the in the light of the conversation we had about um, navigating problematic art, if you have not seen it, an American Werewolf in London is really good. Uh, just I don't know, don't feel bad if you need to to download it or torrent it to get a copy of it because it's old and they've all made their money on it. So strong endorsement for piracy from August. <laughs> um, I'm also going to speak about problematic art, but perhaps in a different way. Uh, my hot take this week is that, I mean, I guess maybe I have to give you the context of the story. Uh, if you may not know, like in case you don't know, Seth Green is an actor who was in Buffy and then a variety of other things. Ratman. Uh, Ratman? Austin, no, Austin Rat Powers. Rat Race. Austin Powers, Rat Race. There you go. Um, he was supposed to have a new show, the star of which was an aboard ape NFT that he had purchased. Um, and days before the premiere, if either like the trailer or the show itself, he got uh, like hacked or fished or whatever, and he ended up giving over his password and his apes got stolen. And so now, because of copyright laws, allegedly this show can't be premiered. My hot take is that this has to be a, a guerrilla marketing um, thing where it's like designed to make us like outrageously talk about how stupid this fucking is. Because if it is not, it is, like, ridiculously fucking stupid. I don't even understand how, like, I, I'm so confused by, like, the, the fact that somebody, first of all, like, how are you still falling for phishing scams at this point, like, m weeks and weeks and months later after everybody else did? And then why do you not have the ability to use this character? Like, I would have, I would imagine that when you owned the NFT, when you started doing this the, this deal to produce the show, you had to sign over some type of ability for like the, the production studio to be able to use this character and so on. And would, so how would that still not be in place even if you lost the ownership of the ridiculous NFT concept? Like, I don't know. I mean, my hot take maybe is that NFTs are fucking stupid and this is all like they're in general probably a scam and it's all corny. And I'm guessing celebrities need to stop getting involved with nfts because you know like I, I mentioned this like months and months back that um 
his name, Matt Damon was promoting and, and Brie Larson, all these people were promoting NFTs. And there's like, you can go now and check out, like if you had bought NFTs when uh, Matt Damon was promoting them, like say it's like you put a thousand and I think at this point you would have like $300 or something. And it's like zillionaires probably have money to fuck around with. Like the rest of us do not. And so I'm so tired about the concept of NFTs. I'm so tired of celebrities getting involved with them. And this whole thing with Seth Green is probably a guerrilla marketing thing to just design to have conversation about this. Because if it isn't, it is the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard. I still don't understand what an NFT is, and you don't need to explain it, because I don't want to know. Yeah, that's probably the best the best thing to do at this point. Stay away, stay away from NFTs is my my hot take. Unless Layered Butter offers NFTs in the future, in which, which case, case please, please ignore. Please purchase them immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's going to be it for us this week. Thank you so much for uh, to Hannah and Marcel for joining us earlier this episode. Uh, make sure to follow Layered Butter. Uh, we're at Layered underscore Butter on Twitter. We're at Layered Butter on Instagram. Um, you can find me everywhere at rcockting, R-C-O-K-T-I-N-G. That includes, uh, you know, Insta, Twitter. Letterbox, everywhere. He is a everywhere. kid. Literally everywhere. Tumblr.com. Um, yeah rcockting.tumblr.com. I wonder if that still exists. Maybe I should check that before I start telling people to go check it out. Problematic author. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Just delete all my old posts. Um, Jordan, uh, Jordan, where can people find you? Uh, You can find me at jsloggett at Letterboxd. That's jsloggett S-L-O-G-G-E-T-T Follow me. Read my reviews. Not that you need to tell us what the actual URL was, but did you ever have a Tumblr account? I did not have a Tumblr account. I I feel like in the time where I could have embraced Tumblr, I got onto Reddit. Um, nice. And probably am worse off as a person because of it, because of that divergence. But Interesting. Uh, Tumblr, uh, I, you know, like anything on the internet, you get linked to it and I'd go check it out. And the comments always just confused me, like the actual structure of how the comment like comments work on Tumblr. Yeah. Um, like a reblog and add your own kind of thing, but it's like never in order. Anyways, um, just to confirm that my Tumblr does exist. So go check it out. I just confirmed mine does yeah. too, but Rat, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me, um, on their box at J Raphael. You can find me on Instagram at J Raphael Cordero. Well, there you go. That's going to be us for this week. Uh, we have still a couple of episodes left this season, but it is yes. quickly coming to an end. So make sure to catch every single one. We will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.